This podcast contains adult themes and may be disturbing to some listeners. Discretion is advised. Welcome back to Class A Felons, B-Film, C-Cups. I'm your hostess, Paris Brown. This is the fourth episode of our second season, Stranger Than Fiction, and part two of the Truman Capote Chronicle. This episode is titled, Miss Bang Bang. Apple and iTunes boost and promote podcasts based upon subscriptions numbers. Those who hit that little subscribe button when you search for the show, and upon the ratings as well as the quantity of ratings. These are the main ways that listeners find the show, so please subscribe, rate us with five stars wherever you listen, and share the show with your family, friends, enemies, frenemies, whoever. We welcome them all. I also want to dedicate this episode to Morrison Davis, my great uncle, who served in the U.S. Navy and died on the USS Lizcombe Bay during World War II on November 24, 1943, at age 21. background. Even before Truman's story, La Cote Basque, became public, Anne Woodward had been the subject of wild gossip. According to one story, Anne had been a chorus girl and a quote-unquote prostitute or sex worker in her younger years and had murdered her husband in cold blood, so to speak, after finding out he was having an affair with Marilyn Monroe, which was untrue. In La Cote Basque, the character of Anne is portrayed as a quote, tramp, a call girl, a dangerous serpent, a con artist, a murderess, an assassin, unquote, and even a bigamist. So who was Anne Woodward really? Anne was born Angeline Lucille Crowell on December 12, 1915. She was born the day before her father Jesse's 24th birthday, reportedly in a shack in which animals were slaughtered on her parents' farm near Pittsburgh, Kansas. If this is true, my question is, why couldn't her mother Ethel give birth inside the house? Ethel was 20 years old. Anne, then called Angie, had one other sibling, a brother named Jesse Jr., who was a year and a half older than her. When Angie was two and a half, Jesse developed a persistent fever and died two months before his fourth birthday. Ethel, who had doted on her son, was inconsolable. She decided that she should never have married a poor farmer and that Jesse could have been saved if they'd had the money to take him to a hospital. She announced that she would return to her college studies through a correspondence course that she'd been forced to abandon when she was pregnant with Jesse. At the time, married women were not allowed to teach school in Kansas, which was what Ethel had planned to do. She completed her bachelor's degree when Angie was four and a half and became the principal of a one-room schoolhouse in another county, hiding her marriage and child by leaving Angie with Jesse on the farm. A year later, Ethel began working on a master's degree and also taught school to make ends meet. 
This required her to continue spending much of her time away from home, so Angie was shuffled among her father, her grandmother, and an aunt. Just before Angie's eighth birthday, Jesse filed for divorce. He was awarded almost all the property and at first tried to get sole custody of Angie, claiming that Ethel was an unfit mother because she worked. He eventually gave up the fight, and Ethel moved away with Angie to teach high school. The couple both sold their shares of the farm to a mining company, and Ethel proudly bought a small house with the profit she made. Less than three years later, the property the Crowells sold was discovered to contain one of the richest natural gas deposits in the entire state, earning the company that bought it millions of dollars. This tormented Ethel for the rest of her life. Angie was highly intelligent and an excellent student, but didn't have many friends. She had brown hair and blue-green eyes and was a pale, thin girl. She loved the movies and announced that she would one day go to Hollywood. Absolutely not, her mother responded. When Angie was almost 12, she woke up one morning to find her mother gone. She believed she'd been abandoned until she found a note from Ethel informing her that she'd gone to Kansas City to elope with a man 17 years her senior. From the start, the marriage was unstable, with fights breaking out when Angie's stepfather demanded that Ethel stop her graduate studies, then Ethel leaving him and hitting the road with Angie, then returning and starting the whole cycle over again. Despite this, she earned her master's degree in 1928 in social sciences and left her husband for good. By 1931, mother and daughter were living in Kansas City, where Ethel had started her own 24-hour taxicab business. The Great Depression had begun in the U.S., and the only teachers getting jobs were those with political connections. Angie attended high school and wrote for the school newspaper, but she also spelled her mother in the taxi dispatch office during night shifts so that she could catch short naps. That year, Ethel briefly became engaged to a wealthy rancher who advanced her nearly $5,000, over $84,000 in today's money, for some property, but she soon ended the relationship. The man sued her for the money, and she spent one night in jail, although the charges were later dropped. Ethel then approached a prosperous local gangster to ask him to assist her in beginning another business venture, a speakeasy. Prohibition on the production and sale of alcohol was still federal law in the United States, and underground bars, called speakeasies, were often the most reliable way to find a drink. The gangster agreed to sell her beer and gin, and she ran the illegal bar out of her home, recruiting the 15-year-old Angie as a cocktail waitress. A local police captain was a regular customer. But the in-home saloon, which just barely kept Ethel and Angie afloat, closed only a couple of years later when Prohibition ended. Angie seemed to have inherited Ethel's quick temper, or more probably had been conditioned to react in the same way. Although the two loved each other, they often fought. Angie was invited to attend two junior colleges after graduation, but she didn't have the money. Early in the morning on July 17, 1933, the FBI, then called the BOI, or Bureau of Investigation, had just recaptured escaped bank robber Frank Jelly Nash and were transporting him on a train toward Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary, which was about a 30-mile or 48-kilometer drive from Kansas City. They arrived at the city's Union Station and escorted him to a waiting police car for the last leg of the trip. Suddenly, submarine gunfire rang out. Nash's gangster friends had arranged to free him, 
But the plan didn't go quite as planned. Nash himself was shot and killed, along with four law enforcement officers. The suspects fled in a nearby car. That morning, Angie was awakened by the startling sound of the front door breaking into pieces. She cowered in bed as men in suits pointed shotguns at her, yelling, Stay put, lady, and where are they? It was the FBI. They began searching the house. Ethel and Angie's neighbor, after listening to radio broadcasts, had called the FBI that morning to report that she saw a vehicle in the area matching the description of the getaway car, believed to belong to gangster Pretty Boy Floyd. The woman also helpfully added that she'd once seen the bodyguard of local gangster Johnny Lazia, the man who'd helped Ethel start up her speakeasy, outside the Crow Women's home. Although the FBI quickly realized that Angie and Ethel had no connections to what came to be called the Kansas City Massacre, 17-year-old Angie had nightmares for a long time of FBI men breaking in and shooting guns while she tried to hide from them. In 1936, Angie began taking modeling lessons and asked everyone to start calling her Anne, after a Hollywood actress she idolized, Anne Harding, much to her mother's chagrin. At 21, she became engaged to her high school sweetheart. Six months later, he broke off the engagement, feeling threatened by her desire to become an actress and believing that their life goals were too different. Angie, now Anne, called and wrote him a few times, but he stopped responding. Soon after that, she began working as a salesperson and hat model at a local upscale department store. She bleached her hair blonde and developed a deep tan as well as a flattering physique. She saved her money until she had enough to buy a used car with a little left over. She'd managed to get a referral from the department store owner to the Powers Modeling Agency in Manhattan, New York. Ethel at first cried and forbade Anne from going, but when she realized her daughter's determination, she gave her $400, about $7,400 today, in cash and tips on how to stay safe as a single woman on her own. On her first day in New York, Anne immediately paid a visit to the Powers Modeling Agency. She wanted to speak to the owner, John Powers, in person. The receptionist refused. Anne said she would wait. She hung out in the reception room for five entire days in a row. During that time, she studied the models walking in and out. She exchanged her bright red shirtwaist dress for a tight, plain gray suit and imitated the model's makeup application. On day five, Mr. John, the owner, invited her into his office. Despite her body measurements of 36, 20, 34, he told her that she would need to diet and exercise. He also told her to get a nose job. But she was hired, pinning the nose job. She borrowed money for it from her former boss and worked nights and weekends selling hats at Saks Fifth Avenue. Although she never became a famous model, she gained moderate success by posing in soap and lipstick ads for magazines. Since she was a young girl, Anne had been slightly obsessed with the film star Joan Crawford. She felt she knew something of what Joan had been through before her career took off. She, too, had lived in poverty in Kansas City. One night at the famous El Morocco nightclub, Anne spotted Francho Tone, who was at the time going through a divorce from Joan Crawford. Overcome by this proximity to her idol through a man who knew her intimately, Anne boldly approached him and asked him to dance. That dance lasted for several months in the form of an unequal relationship. Tone, who was nine years older, 
was still obsessed with Joan and was still seeing her despite their pending divorce. He urged Anne to get braces for her teeth. He told her that he thought of Joan while in bed with her. He also had a reputation for physically abusing his partners, although it's unknown whether he ever struck Anne. Franchot, however, did recommend Anne for an audition in a Noel Coward musical called Set to Music, even though Franchot told her that he didn't believe she had any real acting ability. Nevertheless, she was hired as part of the chorus. Anne was so enthusiastic about her small part that she kept a notebook near the stage and would rush to write notes in it whenever Noel Coward gave stage directions, even if they were for someone else. The other chorus girls, mainly other more successful models, excluded Anne from their backstage conversations, were disdainful about the braces on her teeth, and made fun of her enthusiasm, calling her Miss Ambition. Although Anne and the rest of the chorus won praise, the musical itself received mixed reviews. Her relationship with Franchot ended shortly after he secured her another audition for a minor role in the play Abe Lincoln in Illinois. Anne changed her last name to Eden because she liked the way it sounded as a stage name. She began seeing a fellow actor in the troupe, but turned him down when he proposed to her. Near the end of the play's run, Anne's mother Ethel was diagnosed with a rare lung disease. When she was done touring, Anne returned to Kansas to manage her mother's medical care. A few months later, she brought Ethel to a New York hospital so that she could continue working on her career. Although Anne always saved her money and lived frugally, Ethel's hospital bills forced her to look for steadier work. She applied as a course girl at the Monte Carlo nightclub in New York. When the owner rejected her, she returned the next day, having found out that a mobster who was an associate of Johnny Lazia had financed the club. Remember, Johnny had sold Ethel her prohibition liquor back in Kansas City. Anne told the owner that her family had once done business with Johnny and should like to work with him again. He then hired her on the spot. In the meantime, Anne began to audition for radio work. In the 1940s, before televisions were sold, pretty much every home had a radio, and families listened to it for news and entertainment, such as soap operas, sitcoms, game shows, and children's programs. Anne's first radio spot was as a contestant on a quiz show. Ethel died in March 1941 at age 46. Anne was 25. She handled the funeral and burial arrangements and took a train back to Kansas with her mother's body. While there, she reunited with relatives, except for her father. An older cousin of Anne's on her father's side became confused after hearing all of her plans to go to Hollywood, and later wrote to Jessie, somehow convinced that Anne had changed her name and was now the film actor Eve Arden, who is perhaps best known for a supporting role in Mildred Pierce with Joan Crawford. Jessie and the rest of the family proudly spread the news that Anne was a famous Hollywood star. Most hadn't seen her since she was a child, and it was easy to believe that there was a resemblance. Seven years later, the local newspaper would even feature a local girl makes good story about Anne's transformation into Eve Arden. None of the other locals, including Anne's father, realized their mistake until after the fatal shooting. Billy's background. William Woodward II, a.k.a. Billy, 
descended from a line of wealthy bankers, but the family's initial fortune had been made from profiteering during the American Civil War. His father, William Sr., was a renowned horse breeder and thoroughbred racer who had inherited Bel Air, the first American stud farm. His mother, Elizabeth, a.k.a. Elsie, was one of the famous Kreider triplets, three identical sisters born in 1882 who were a novelty in high society in both New York and Western Europe. Born on June 12, 1920, Billy was the youngest of five children and his parents' only son. William Sr. had become increasingly irritated at each subsequent daughter's birth and viewed Billy as his only true heir. However, father and son were not close. William, like Elsie, left all the child-rearing to their nannies and neither enjoyed being parents. William had a saying. He preferred horses to trees, trees to people, and adults to any of his children. Elsie had her own saying whenever Billy confided that he wasn't feeling well, either physically or emotionally. Well then, be a dear and come back and tell me when you feel better. When Billy was a young boy, his older sisters tried to teach him how to swim. He inhaled seawater and was so traumatized by the experience that he refused to ever learn. By the age of 12, he owned several guns and would play in his bedroom with his best friend, using loaded revolvers. Away at boarding school as a teen, he had his own bank account, a car with a custom-installed sterling silver ice bucket, and a maid. After his obligatory acceptance at Harvard, due to his parents' status, he often skipped classes to lounge around in a smoking jacket and have breakfast and a martini in bed. He had no scholarly interests. Neither did he show any real interest in women, although he sometimes tagged along with his best friend to keep him company at nightclubs. After World War II broke out, William Sr. commanded Billy to join the Naval Reserve. tragic tale. At the Monte Carlo, part of Anne's dance routine involved wearing a white bathing suit, black fishnet stockings, rabbit ears, and a piece of cotton attached to her rear end. This was a typical showgirl getup. That's right, Hugh Hefner did not invent the bunny rabbit look for grown women. One night, William Woodward Sr. bumped into two younger men he hadn't expected to see there. They were his son Billy and Billy's best friend, nicknamed Bean. William Sr. awkwardly joined them at their table, and Bean asked the waiter to invite two of the quote-unquote bunny girls over. One of them was Anne. William Sr. immediately started chattering to her about races, horses, and horse breeding. Bean talked to the other coarse girl, who he was secretly engaged to, while Billy sat silent the entire night. William Sr. invited Anne to the racetrack. It's uncertain whether Billy ever knew that Anne accepted his father's invitation at least once, but a rumor quickly circulated among the upper crust that Anne was William's mistress. A few weeks later, Bean and Billy were at the Monte Carlo again and invited Anne and Bean's fiancé out to another nightclub after their shift ended. Billy was again initially silent, but Anne caught him staring at her. However, he also sort of openly leered at the course girls in the stage show. When Anne caught him, he quickly told her that he preferred the view at the Monte Carlo, where she worked. Anne was finally winning audition callbacks, not as a film or stage actress as she'd always dreamed, 
but as a radio actor. In June 1941, she landed a regular role as a nurse in the radio series Joyce Jordan, Girl Intern. Between her voice work and her night job at the Monte Carlo, she earned $80 a week, nearly $1,400 in today's U.S. money. Later that year, she won a part in a highly rated NBC dramatic series starring Ethel Barrymore called Lincoln Highway. WABC's publicity department promoted her as, quote, the most beautiful girl in radio, unquote. Over the next two years, she was a regular on three more radio shows. In March 1942, a startling thing occurred. William Woodward Sr. asked his son if he was seeing any women. When Billy answered no, William suggested he call up Anne. Neither William nor Billy mentioned to the other that they had both seen her since that first night at the Monte Carlo. Billy took his father's advice, and a few nights later, he took Anne to New York's 21 Club. They continued to date, and Billy invited her on a day trip to Saratoga in August, when one of his father's horses would be running in an important race. That day, they arrived a bit late. Billy introduced Anne to his mother, Elsie. Anne made the mistake of mentioning to William, in front of Elsie, how much she'd enjoyed her previous trip to his stables. Certainly, William had not told his wife about inviting Anne, and it's not clear that he told Billy either, or that Billy heard this exchange. Anne made several more missteps that day, things that would seem negligible to you or me, but were extremely offensive to Elsie. For one, she took a rose from the table centerpiece and stuck it in Billy's lapel, which made Elsie frown. Next, a film crew happened to be Saratoga that day working on a movie called Saratoga Trunk. An assistant approached Anne during lunch and asked if she could be an extra for a few minutes. They, quote, needed a pretty girl to stroll out the clubhouse door in front of the camera, unquote. Billy was proud of her, but Elsie again fumed that such a common woman was in her presence. Finally, just before the race began, Anne's hat irritated Elsie, who later referred to it as, quote, a vulgar, up-to-the-minute shop girl's bonnet, unquote. She told Anne that the large black velvet platter hat trimmed in green was, quote, not made of glass, unquote, and ordered her to take it off in the crowd. After meeting Anne, Elsie hired a private detective to follow her and look into her background. He reported back about Anne's previous brief love affairs and revealed that Billy had given Anne a gold bracelet that had belonged to his grandmother. Elsie summoned Billy for tea and told him that Anne had dated Franchot Tone before his divorce from Joan Crawford had been finalized. But Anne's shoulder rubbing with Hollywood stars only further impressed Billy. He told his mother that Anne liked her very much, and that she reminded Anne of the heroines of Edith Wharton novels. Elsie was not impressed. In December 1942, a year after the bombing at Pearl Harbor that prompted the U.S.'s late involvement in World War II, Billy enlisted in the Navy. Soon after, he received emergency orders to report to gunnery school in Tacoma, Washington, on the opposite coast of the U.S. Anne cried upon hearing the news. Billy invited her to live with him in Washington. In dramatic fashion, she answered, Marry me now or go away forever. He told her he would think it over and left. Anne grew desperate. She eventually called him and said she was willing to live with him even if he didn't think she was worthy enough to marry. She would give up her four radio jobs and apologize for even mentioning marriage. At the end of her self-flagellation, 
Billy asked her if there was someone in her family that he should ask for permission to marry her. Anne lied and told him that both of her parents were dead. Ethel had often said that Jessie was dead when trying to explain her status as a single mother. Billy wrote his parents, I have asked Miss Eden for her hand in marriage, and she has honored me by accepting. The Woodwards were appalled and called him immediately. Elsie called Anne a gold digger. William asked Billy, There's no emergency? Billy replied, We want to get married now. I'm asking if Miss Eden is in the family way, his father exasperatedly clarified. When Billy answered that no, she wasn't pregnant, William advised his son to, quote, buy her an apartment and give her an allowance, unquote, as a mistress, as a, quote, unquote, normal man would. But Billy would not back down. William immediately contacted the family attorney to write up paperwork preventing Anne from inheriting any money if Billy should die during the war. The two were married on March 10, 1943. The only family member in attendance was William. Anne wore a department store wedding dress with a three-foot lace train, while Billy wore his navy dress uniform. On the marriage license, Anne listed her age as 23, then crossed it out and wrote 21. She was actually 27. Billy was 22. Soon after the wedding, Anne made another error. She mentioned that she had seen Billy's father socially several times at William's invitation. She swore the relationship had always been platonic, but Billy was humiliated. Anne doubled her efforts to please him. At Elsie's suggestion, she hired a full-time servant. She read books to familiarize herself with antiques and etiquette, took Spanish lessons, and began artificial tanning. She bought dressing gowns that matched the fabrics decorating their home. Billy, however, whether in sudden recognition of their class differences, because of his anxieties about going to war, because of his suspicions about Anne and his father, or simply because he felt he could treat Anne however he wanted now that they were married, became disdainful toward her around his military friends. He criticized her for eating too much, for pronunciation of words, for trying out her Spanish, for, quote, flirting like a tramp, unquote, and once for drinking too much, even though she hadn't seemed drunk to anyone else. In June, Billy was assigned to deployment as an officer on the aircraft carrier Lizcombe Bay. Before leaving, he presented Anne with a loose emerald from Tiffany's, worth $25,000, other jewelry from Winston's worth nearly $50,000, and a $10,000 U.S. savings bond, a combined value of over $1.2 million in today's money. Three months later, Anne wrote Billy that she was pregnant. He asked her to stay with his family in New York during her confinement, but she wrote back that she'd rather have her fingernails pulled out with pliers. No, wait, sorry, that's what I would have said. I can't imagine living with Elsie Woodward. Anne soon received a letter from Elsie commanding her to return to New York and move into the family home. So Anne dutifully went. On November 24th, the Liscombe Bay was just off the coast of the Gilbert Islands in the South Pacific Ocean. It was part of a fleet that was invading this Japanese-held land. At five o'clock in the morning, Billy was finishing a shift as acting captain in charge of the ship, while the actual captain... Irving Wiltsey was sleeping. Wiltsey had requested to be wakened at 5 o'clock, so Billy sent a messenger to his quarters. At 5.11 a.m., a sudden explosion lifted Billy three feet into the air and sent him flying. A Japanese torpedo had struck the ship. 
Billy went into shock and froze. Around him, dying men shouted for help, while other shipmates sprang into rescue mode. Ammunition exploded, creating a thousand-foot-tall mushroom cloud. Oil from the ship leaked into the sea, which caught fire. Captain Wiltsey died as he tried to investigate the ship's damage. The second-in-command, now the ranking surviving officer, was Lieutenant Commander Oliver Ames. He rushed to the bridge where Billy was gagging on smoke and the odor of burning flesh. Oliver helped Billy climb down onto the heavily damaged flight deck and told him to jump 30 feet into the flaming sea. After trying to swim away from the ship for 45 minutes, Billy was able to join several other men on a life net. At 6.15 a.m., they were rescued by the USS Hughes. 644 other men died, including my great-uncle, Morrison Davis. The sinking of the Liscombe Bay is considered the most fatal tragedy in U.S. naval history. Billy was lucky to have escaped with only minor burns and a sprained back. He was relieved from active duty and received a Purple Heart, even though he felt survivor's guilt and shame for his inaction. The event changed him and made him more reckless. He soon contacted his family from the quote-unquote best suite at the San Francis Hotel in San Francisco and sent for Anne. But in the meantime, he ordered cases of liquor and had multiple women staying with him in the suite, telling a friend, they are all willing. This hotel is full of pretty girls, and I'm having the time of my life. In July 1944, Anne gave birth to William Woodward III, whom they nicknamed Woody. Billy gave her several gifts in return, including a sapphire necklace, another $10,000, and security funds of $200,000, a combined worth of at least $3.2 million in today's money. After their return to New York, Anne enrolled in a business course to learn about financial investments, and Billy spent the days drinking with buddies at the Ritz Hotel's bar. His father gave him the remainder of his trust fund, which netted $10,000 a month. That would be a little more than $145,000 per month today. Now that she had a child, Anne wanted her own home, but Billy had little incentive to leave his parents' mansion. Anne became one of the first young American society women to support the fashion designer Charles James. His dresses put her on the society page's list of best-dressed women. In 1945, he invited her to model one of his creations in Vogue magazine. As usual, Elsie was offended at what she considered a vulgar display of exhibitionism. When Woody was two, Anne became pregnant again, and Billy began an affair with Princess Marina Torleona, the daughter of a titled Italian and the wife of international tennis star Frank Shields, who would later become the grandfather of model and actor Brooke Shields. Frank was abusive to Marina at times and carried on his own extramarital affairs. Billy began flying to Los Angeles for weekend visits with Marina, and he revised his will to reduce Anne's share of his estate. Anne and Billy's second son, James, nicknamed Jimmy, was born in January 1947. He looked like Anne's brother, who had died as a young child, while Woody took after his father's side of the family. Like the Woodwards, the two sons were hyper-aware of class status. Jimmy would later comment, I'm a mongrel a mix of blue blood and red blood. The boys spent much of their childhoods with their governess and the family chauffeur, as their father continued to escape the family home as much as possible, and their mother was preoccupied with winning back Billy's affections. 
Having two children underfoot finally prompted Elsie to order Billy to find his own home. He and Anne bought a five-story townhouse in New York City, and Anne decorated it with French furniture. Do you think Elsie approved? No, of course she did not. She believed in solid, plain English furniture. Now that Anne had a domain free of Elsie, she began giving dinner parties, a favorite pastime of the upper crust. She had long been obsessed with Wallace Simpson, now the Duchess of Windsor, for whom King Edward VIII had given up his throne to marry, as she was a divorced woman and that wasn't allowed. And that wasn't allowed in royalty. Wallace was very popular in the U.S., but perhaps remembering her own experience as an outsider in England, she was one of the few socialites to treat Anne with genuine kindness. Billy Hopper was known to hit Anne on occasion, and once, when the cook burnt dessert during a party for the Windsors, he blamed it on her. A military acquaintance who had served at Billy's wedding as best man later described him as selfish and egotistical and well-mannered. I don't recall Anne being at peace with herself. Everything was always a crisis. She was insecure, but he gave her that feeling. In 1948, Marina filed for divorce from her husband and proposed to Billy, who seriously considered it. Anne hired a private detective to follow Billy, and when she confronted him with a photo of him and Marina, he told her he wanted a divorce. Anne forgot all about the picture and pleaded with him. A fight ensued, and a neighbor called the police. Billy called Marina, agreed to marry her on the spot, and left the house, with Anne screaming behind him, I'll never let you go. The next morning, Anne was diagnosed with a mild concussion after her row with Billy, and her doctor prescribed her tranquilizers, sleeping pills, antidepressants, and amphetamines. Billy's parents agreed to pay Anne a $2 million divorce settlement, worth over $21 million today. But Anne was still somehow terrified that she would end up penniless. A few months later, she accepted an invitation to stay with Prince Ali Khan, son of a powerful Muslim imam on the French Riviera, even though he was engaged to the film actor Rita Hayworth. When word of this reached Billy, he suddenly found Anne very appealing again. Then, the death of Billy's best childhood friend, Bean, brought them back together. Bean, like Billy, was about to divorce his wife and marry another woman. Billy felt that perhaps Bean wouldn't have died if he'd only been at home with his wife. Spooked, he postponed the divorce and saved face with his friends by spreading the rumor that Anne had asked for too much settlement money. In reality, Billy promised not to divorce her only if she would allow him to have affairs on the side. Anne, willing to do anything to save the marriage, reluctantly agreed, but continued to try to be the perfect wife so that he wouldn't want to stray. In 1951, Anne and Billy rented part of a large Italian stucco, quote-unquote, country estate on Long Island's North Shore that they called the Playhouse. The grounds were surrounded by pine forests and a country club, but the Woodwards weren't the only tenants. The back of the house was rented to a recording company, and the Woodwards' quarters were cramped by their standards, but when they bought the property the following year, they kept their tenant for tax purposes. Anne and Billy took separate bedrooms, separated by an 18-foot hallway. In the middle of a dinner party in 1952, Billy announced disparagingly that he thought Anne looked 10 years older than him. But that same year, Anne was voted one of six great American beauties in Vogue magazine. At 36, 
She was the eldest of the six, and also the only one not born to great wealth. Although Anne was often shunned by New York society, international society took great interest in her. She was invited to India by the Maharaja of Jaipur and brought Billy with her. She tagged along when Billy went tiger hunting, I know, and quickly gained a reputation as a wild and dangerous shot. The same year, Anne met the famous realist painter Salvador Dali and commissioned her portrait for $7,000, over $67,000 in today's money. Anne showed up for the sitting dressed in her best finery. He told her it would be completed in a year, and it would be a masterpiece. A year later, Dali presented Anne with this masterpiece. She was horrified. He had placed her in her gown and jewelry on a stark beach next to a cave, as if to mock her wealth. She also did not like the way he painted her face with slightly exaggerated features. I personally think it's an interesting and not unflattering painting. And furthermore, if you're going to hire Dali, you should expect a bit of the bazaar. But I'll post the image on social media so you can judge for yourselves. In any case, Anne refused to pay for the portrait and Dali sued her, taking the case all the way to the New York Supreme Court. The Woodwards finally paid. They tried to sell the painting, but no one bought it. Anne hid it away in a closet, and her son Woody inherited it after her death. I should also mention here that mother-in-law Elsie was extremely offended by Anne's public battle with Dally, just in case you were wondering. While Billy went out with other women, Anne began having her own affairs. Lord William Astor, who would later be involved in the British government's 1963 Profumo sex scandal, proposed to Anne after only a few weeks but she was still too obsessed with Billy. She then became involved with a French heir, André Dubonnet. She would tell Billy about these affairs, and he would be impressed at Anne's ability to attract high society. Billy's father, William, died in 1953 of heart disease. He left Billy Bel Air, his 3,000-acre stud farm in the U.S. state of Maryland, plus $1 million, $9.5 million today. Most of the remaining $45 million now nearly $432 million estate, went to Elsie. Billy's oldest sister was bitterly disappointed at having to give up her supervision of the horses to Billy, who had never taken an interest in them. But Anne encouraged him to get involved, hoping it would help cure his perpetual playboy boredom. The prize horse of the stable was called Nashua, which had been sired by an Irish stallion. Billy became excited to read books on horses and to attend races. Over the next two years, Billy, as well as the enthusiastic and camera-friendly Anne, became the darlings of the sporting press. As Nashua won race after race, earning them hundreds of thousands of dollars in prizes, high society in the U.S. finally began paying attention to Anne. Since many of the races were televised, Billy and Anne became TV celebrities, receiving fan mail and requests for autographs. Although horse racing brought Billy and Anne together, they continued to fight. Billy sometimes punched Anne, and she occasionally hit him back. Sometimes she appeared in public with bruises. Elsie still urged her son to divorce Anne, and even tried matching him up with other society women. Anne became obsessed with going on hunting trips, even though she was still such a terrible shot that no one wanted to go with her for fear of being accidentally gunned down. But in 1954, Billy bought her a custom-made 12-gauge double-barrel shotgun. The next year, she took it to Germany for a wild boar hunt. That seems like it should be a metaphor for something that I can't quite articulate. 
During a formal dinner at the castle of their hosts, Prince Alex Hohenloa and his wife, Princess Patricia, a.k.a. Honeychild, yes, that's actually what people called her, Anne made an embarrassing scene when Billy and the woman sitting next to him appeared to be flirting. Anne demanded to know what they were talking about and forced the woman to move. Anne's jealousy was frequently on public display during society gatherings. She even once fought physically with another woman. Another time, when Billy was dancing at a party with actor Joan Fontaine, Anne broke in and commanded Joan to, quote, unhand my man, unquote. But her current hosts were unused to such behavior. Princess Honeychild told Anne after dinner that she was insane and needed help. That night, screams could be heard from the Woodward's bedroom. Billy shoved Anne and she threw a glass face at him, shattering it. The next morning, Prince Alex pulled Billy aside. He echoed his wife in saying that Anne was insane and that she needed help. He also asked the couple leave his home. During the summer of 1955, Billy befriended British writer Ian Fleming, famous for his James Bond novels. Fleming would dedicate the thriller Diamonds Are Forever to Billy and based an American character named Lighter in the book on Billy. However, Fleming took a disliking to Anne and, like Elsie, advised Billy to divorce her. At the end of August, Nashville the horse was to participate in a high-stakes match race with another champion horse that had previously beat him. Billy was nervous, especially because his mother did not approve of this rematch. Elsie had previously elicited a promise from Billy that he would select Anne's clothing for the racetrack because she didn't like her daughter-in-law's ostentatious style. This was despite the fact that Sports Illustrated had recently referred to Anne as the best-dressed woman in sports. While packing for the trip to Chicago for the race, Anne obediently asked Billy to select her outfit, but he put her off multiple times, saying he was too busy. At 3 a.m. the morning of the race, Billy woke up with a bad case of nerves. Anne got up as well to comfort him. When it was time to leave, she begged him to pick out an outfit to his and his mother's standards, but he ignored her. Anne broke down, sobbing with anxiety. Billy went downstairs where friends were waiting and told them Anne was having trouble deciding what to wear. His friends assumed that Anne was putting her vanity ahead of Billy's big day. Finally, Billy went back upstairs and told her to put on a low-cut black cocktail dress. It was obviously the most inappropriate choice, as society women usually wore pastel dresses and suits to the races. But their horse won, making him the second largest moneymaker in thoroughbred history. Even though reporters swarmed Anne, and her décolletage, it was the best day of Billy's short life. When Elsie viewed the publicity, it was the last straw in 15 years of what she considered Anne's numerous offenses. She told Billy that she never wanted to see Anne in the winner's circle again. In late October, Billy decided he wanted to buy a small, four-seater airplane called a Helio. There were only a few Helios in existence. When he discovered that they were manufactured in Pittsburgh, Kansas, Anne's birthplace, he joked that his wife was manufactured there, too. He made plans to fly to Pittsburgh and pilot home his new plane. On October 24th, while waiting for his test pilot to pick him up, Billy asked around about Anne's family. He learned that her father, Jesse, was still alive and a retired streetcar conductor in Detroit, Michigan. He could only imagine what his mother would say about that. Moreover, he learned that Jesse had never been an army colonel, as Anne told him when they first met. At his hotel, he telephoned Anne to tell her that he had some dirt on her for his lawyers. 
suggesting this information could be grounds for divorce. Anne lied and claimed that her mother had long ago told her she was a widow. On October 27th, Billy and Anne were on their way to their Oyster Bay Cove playhouse for the weekend. Early the next morning, police arrived to do a search of the grounds. Unbeknownst to the Woodwards, a prowler had been stealing food and cars in the area for months. They had been called by the night watchman, who discovered that the garage and pool cabana had been broken into. They suspected it was a loose prowler. The family chauffeur notified Billy when he awoke that canned soup and shotgun shells had been stolen, so they could assume the prowler had a shotgun. On the night of October 30th, 1955, Billy and Anne drove to a party nearby that was being given for the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, two of Anne's favorite people. They left their sons in the care of a new maid and instructed her to lock all the doors. It was lightly raining. Billy, on high alert for the prowler, brought a revolver along and stowed it in the car's glove compartment. Anne wore a gray taffeta ball gown, edged in marabou feathers, an opal and diamond necklace, and a large emerald ring. Billy a tuxedo. All night, Anne and Billy talked about the prowler with other guests. When one asked if he were dangerous, Anne replied, If he bothers us, we'll be armed. Some guests thought that Anne seemed obsessed with the topic. Another guest affirmed the prowler had tried to force his way into her home two days earlier. It was still raining and foggy when the Woodwards left the party sometime between midnight and 1 a.m., as they approached the house, Billy suddenly went over to Anne's bedroom window, opened it, and climbed inside, telling her, You see how easy the man could get inside the house? According to Anne, Billy then told her they should both sleep with guns nearby. Anne took out her custom-made shotgun that Billy had given her the previous year and laid it on a telephone bench near her bed. Tired from the party, the couple retired to their separate first-floor bedrooms. Billy took a shower and got into bed sleeping, as was his usual habit, in the nude. Anne prepared for bed as well and took a sleeping pill. Anne claimed to have later been awakened by footsteps overhead. She then heard a crash in the hallway. Their miniature poodle that Billy had closed off into the kitchen was barking, as it normally did with strangers around. It was about two o'clock, early Halloween morning. Anne leapt up and grabbed her gun, even though she still felt drowsy from her sleeping pill. She flung open her bedroom door and through the darkness shot toward what she later called both a shadow or a noise in the hallway. She pulled the trigger twice. She would later tell police that in the dark, she thought she was firing in the direction of the stairs toward the living room. But almost instantly she thought, no God, no. But it was too late. Billy was lying naked and bleeding from his face on the hallway floor. She ran to him and knelt beside him, but he was unconscious and died minutes later. He was 35 years old. Anne said she then grabbed all of her ammunition and ran with it to the basement, where she locked it into the gun cabinet, fearing that she would commit suicide if she had access to it. A small pellet had entered Billy's brain from the right side of his head, indicating that he had been looking toward the staircase, perhaps also having heard the noise that Anne described. His right eye was also hit, and his ear was torn. He also had other superficial wounds from the pellets. His own shotgun was still lying near his bed. Suddenly, the night watchman banged on the front door. 
Anne screamed for help. In her shock, she was unable to move. The watchman ran to his office and called the phone operator for connection to the police, just as Anne unfroze and called the operator herself. The next call she made was to Saul Rosenblatt, the only personal attorney she'd ever had. She had retained him when Billy first planned to divorce her. When police arrived, they immediately assumed the by now infamous prowler, thought to be armed, had broken in and shot Billy. They asked Anne if she'd seen the man who did it, but she just shook her head and sobbed. When she was able to speak, she told them that she had shot her husband, thinking it was a prowler. A doctor arrived and gave her a strong sedative, which later annoyed a detective who wanted to question her. Meanwhile, crime scene investigators and the district attorney arrived. They discovered that Billy had been shot from a distance of at least 15 feet, which helped corroborate Anne's story. A single pellet with unfortunate aim had killed him. But there were also questions. If Billy, like Anne, was also disturbed by a noise, why did he leave his bedroom without his own gun? Or did he not notice anything amiss and was just coming to see Anne? But wouldn't he have at least heard the dog barking and wondered why? Later, upon questioning, their two sons, Woody, age 11, and Jimmy, aged 8, said they had been asleep and had heard nothing from the second floor. The maid, also on the second floor, had only heard what she thought was a car backfiring and had fallen back asleep. Because of the Woodward status, the county hired a registered nurse to tend to Anne, who had become delirious. She seemed to think she was either talking to Billy, begging his forgiveness, and asking him to quote-unquote make up with her, or that she was back in the midst of the FBI raid on her home back in Kansas. She asked a detective to get her mother, who she said was just working around the corner. At 8 a.m., Anne's attorney arrived, and she was a little more coherent. He advised her not to leave the house without her jewelry, believing that the Woodward family would take it from her. He arranged for Anne to be moved to Manhattan's doctor's hospital, where the ultra-wealthy stayed for medical care. It was such a privileged place that rumor had it patients were often served cocktails there. But the district attorney ordered police to stand guard outside Anne's hospital room door. Obediently, she had hid a jewelry case underneath her nightgown as she was wheeled out of her home in a stretcher. Elsie was notified of death at 9 a.m. and was, of course, shocked and horrified. Elsie, like most of the Woodward family, believed Anne had killed her son in cold blood. She, too, made a call to her own lawyer. He agreed to help Elsie get immediate custody of Anne's children. Naturally, all the society people wagged their tongues. Most of them believed Anne, because of her tumultuous marriage, was guilty of murder. Some wondered why Anne and Billy would have left their children at home that night with just a maid if they really felt the situation was so dangerous. Others spoke of how Anne seemed to live for Billy's approval and couldn't imagine that she would deliberately kill him, no matter how many problems they had. The Duchess of Windsor was questioned by police and told them that in her opinion, Anne and Billy were an ideal couple. Life magazine dubbed it the shooting of the century. It was also front-page news on the New York Times. Anne remained under sedation after telling doctors that she wanted to kill herself and that she deserved to die. But within hours of her arrival at the hospital, a lawyer representing Elsie paid her a visit. He told Anne that the Woodwards would find her a criminal lawyer 
whether she had shot Billy on purpose or not. Stung at this insinuation of guilt, Anne only replied, No, thank you. I already have my own lawyer. When this was reported back to her, Elsie became even more convinced that Anne had purposely murdered her son. Why else would she have retained an attorney so soon? Anne decided that she would refuse to eat until she was allowed to see her sons. It was several days, though, before Elsie allowed them a short hospital visit with her. A week later, Elsie herself showed up with long black veils covering her face. She coldly told Anne that from now on, she would probably be shunned in the best homes. But Elsie would help to minimalize the press coverage. That is, if in return, Anne gave up her children. Elsie had plans to send them away to a prestigious Swiss boarding school. If Anne refused, Elsie would do her best to prove her an unfit mother. On November 2nd, police arrested the evasive prowler. He was an unemployed German national named Paul Wurst, and he had a 20-gauge shotgun on him, although he did not attempt to use it when he was apprehended. With him was a stolen car, jewelry, knives, and more shotguns. The suspect professed to be relieved that he had been caught. He was questioned about the Woodward shooting and at first protested they had nothing to do with it. After being told that he would not be prosecuted for burglary in that case, he admitted that he had broken into the estate 24 hours before the shooting. Anne had not made up the threat of a prowler. However, Worse would not admit to being on the property the night Billy was killed. One of the officers at the holding cell, a German-American, urged Worse to tell the truth because, quote, there's a woman with two small children involved, unquote. Worse was alone the rest of the day, according to jail logs. The next morning, he summoned an officer and said he wanted to talk. In his official statement, Worse said that he had in fact been living on the Woodward's property for several days, as it reminded him of foggy, damp mornings in Germany. He had a rifle with him, he said. For two days, he had also been peeping on Anne. He began to pretend she was his girlfriend. He went into her bedroom while she was at the party. When she returned, he watched Billy climb inside the window from a tree. A few minutes later, he peeped through that same window as Anne undressed. When she turned off the light, he watched Billy, deciding that they must be siblings since they didn't sleep in the same bedroom. He decided to go inside to be with her. He climbed up to the second story and broke a pane of glass with the butt of his gun to unlock it from the inside. This was probably the noise Anne heard, although it's strange to me that the boys and the maid, who were actually on the second floor, didn't awaken. As he climbed into the house, his foot became entangled in a curtain. He lost his balance, his gun fell, and he heard shots, then screams. He thought maybe he had been shot. He rushed back outside, made it to the ground, and ran away. He told police he didn't make a full confession earlier because he was afraid he'd be accused of the murder. Worse was deemed credible by authorities. Those who thought Anne had profited from Billy's death were mistaken. He was worth more to her alive than dead. He had not yet inherited his full share of his parents' estate, and he had twice revised his will to give Anne less money. Nine hundred people attended Billy's funeral, and there were over another thousand spectators outside the church. Anne had planned to attend, but Elsie refused to allow it. For appearance's sake, she did let Anne pick out the flowers for Billy's casket. Anne chose a humongous blanket of white chrysanthemums and red carnations, Billy's racing colors. Elsie continued to harbor such animosity toward Anne that a year later, 
She had the artist of a painting of Nashua that Billy had commissioned remove a likeness of the couple from the background. The artist was so annoyed that he painted himself and his wife in place of Anne and Billy. Elsie's private detectives had turned up nothing new about Anne, but did reveal quite a few affairs of Billy's, as well as his frequent visits to a New York brothel. Elsie reluctantly decided that to protect the family name from scandal, she would have to pretend to publicly support Anne. Feeling she had no one in her corner, Anne called upon her two aunts from Kansas. They made their way to Anne's New York City home, eager to see their great-nephews, but were met at the door by Elsie's private detective and turned away. They were denied permission to see or to talk to Woody and Jimmy until just before they returned to Kansas, although Elsie regularly trotted the boys out to be photographed, visiting Anne in the hospital. Three weeks after Billy's death, Anne left the hospital, draped in black, to face a crowd of reporters and photographers. She was driven to Elsie's house where the two women, along with their attorneys, discussed Billy's will. Elsie announced that she was closing the Bel Air stables that Billy and his father had loved. She also thought Billy was quite generous to Anne in his will, despite three revisions he made that sought to progressively punish her. He had left his wife the smallest share possible by law. Still, this initially amounted to over 500000 per year, $4.7 million per year today, but Anne felt that she was now being supported by Elsie and would have to continue living by her standards. Elsie also said she would look kindly upon a petition from Anne for some of the home furnishings and would pay for Anne's hospital expenses if she would agree to send her sons away. Otherwise, the estate would fight her for every penny. Anne agreed to Elsie's plans. The boys were shipped off immediately. Three days later, on November 25th, Anne had to appear at a grand jury inquiry into Billy's death. The press had been decrying what it viewed as special treatment concerning Anne's culpability in the shooting. In large part, this was due to pressure from two of Billy's best friends who disliked Anne and believed her guilty of murder, although both the police chief and district attorney stated that after their investigations, they believed it was an accidental shooting. Anne agreed to testify on her own behalf, again dressed all in black. She broke down several times on the stand. After listening to 31 witnesses, the grand jury voted unanimously not to indict Anne. The prowler, Paul Wurst, was convicted of several counts of burglary and spent six years in prison. In the mid-1970s, Elsie told the owner of the New York Post she shot him on purpose. Of course she did. The vast majority of Anne's former society friends were happy to follow Elsie's lead and exclude Anne, whom they had always considered an outsider. Once a maid, upset at being fired, screamed to Anne that she was a murderer. Anne tried to stay out of the U.S. for a while, but even abroad, the word had been spread. In Madrid, waiters, salespeople, and fellow tourists called her the Matadora, the killer. Those who did receive her were attracted by the notoriety. A year after Billy's death, Anne fell in love with the Uruguayan diplomat. When newspaper photos of the couple appeared, Elsie wrote Anne to convey her disapproval. Really, did the woman have any other human reactions? But the relationship ended after three and a half years. Anne couldn't stop talking about her dead husband. It would be her longest-lasting partnership next to her marriage. Although she had numerous flings, her only other relationship would be a tempestuous one with a man over 20 years her junior. Her standards were increasingly lowered as she dated, in short order, a mechanic, an ex-con, and a fraud pretending to be a Russian count. Anne traveled the world, either solo or with her sons, when Elsie would give her approval. 
she still insisted on participating in expensive, large-game hunting trips. Even before Billy's death, Anne had been taking loads of prescription medication. Many nights, she washed down antidepressants and sleeping pills with wine. In the early 1970s, while Truman Capote was still profiting off his fame from In Cold Blood, he claimed to have encountered Anne in France. Ever since hearing about the shooting of Billy by his wife's own hand, he'd been fascinated with the story and collected old newspaper clippings on it. According to Truman, he was seated at a restaurant near Anne with a pillar separating their tables. He heard someone mention in conversation to Anne that he was in the room. Not knowing he was within earshot, Anne dropped a homophobic insult. Truman then peered around the pillar, and Anne made a gesture of apology, but Truman stared her down and did not respond. The next night, he saw her again at the restaurant's bar. He told people that he pointed his fingers at her like a gun and said only, Bang, bang. That was his nickname for her from then on. He strongly disliked Miss Bang Bang and enjoyed gossiping about her and repeating embellished stories. In September 1975, Anne was in Marbella, Spain, attending to property she owned there that was burglarized. She was also concerned about money problems. Her annual income had dropped to $100,000, or 469000 yearly today. She had blown all of her capital except for $750,000, or $3.5 million today, on buying up property, expensive trips, and men. While in Spain, according to author Susan Brody, a friend called to give her a heads up that Truman Capote was about to have a short story published in the upcoming issue of Esquire magazine. The short story was partially about her, and it would accuse her of murder as well as bigamy. Anne was already scheduled to return to New York, but she was anguished and told another friend, I must go far away. She repeated this phrase next to the date that Truman's story would be published, October 25th, in her diary. On October 9, 1975, almost 20 years after Billy's death, Anne visited a number of houses of worship, including a Catholic church, a synagogue, and the Episcopal Cathedral where Billy's funeral had taken place. She told her part-time secretary that she had a cyanide pill and asked for her company that evening, but the young woman refused. Anne then contacted her son, Jimmy, now 28 years old, and asked him to come see her. He had recently lost 60 pounds, his eyes were red, and his long blonde hair was greasy. When Anne commented on his appearance, he called her a bitch. Anne, in a confessional mood, told him that his father used to hit her and that Billy wasn't quote-unquote a saint. Jimmy then yelled, you murdered him on purpose, and left. Anne relayed this conversation to a friend who dropped by around 10.30 that night. She was wearing a blue nightgown. She expressed concern for Jimmy, took a pill, and said, I am at peace with God. Sometime that night, she wrote her own name, Anne Woodward, and nothing else, on a notepad sheet and placed it on her telephone. At 9.30 the next morning, her maid discovered her dead. She was lying peacefully in bed, 59 years old, and had seemingly posed herself in full makeup with her hands clasped together. Anne was dressed in beige for her open coffin funeral. As she had been so carefully taught by society women to dress in quote-unquote tasteful muted colors, it seemed that even in death she was still trying to adhere to the rules of the class that had mostly always rejected her. Only a few people attended her funeral. In her will, she left the two attorneys who had supported her during Billy's shooting inquest $25,000 each, nearly $117,000 today. She also requested to be buried next to Billy. Elsie attended the funeral in a good mood. 
She later said, well, that's that. She shot my son, and Truman just murdered her, and so now I suppose we don't have to worry about that anymore. But Elsie should have known that there was something to worry about, the sons who had been affected by the shooting. Initially, Anne's younger son, Jimmy, believed that he had done something wrong to cause his father's death, and that's why he was sent away to boarding school. He did not adjust as well as his brother at the school. Once while visiting with his mother, she refused his request for ice cream. Jimmy pouted, retorting, How come you won't let me have it when you killed my father? Which made Anne cry. Jimmy was her favorite. Woody seemed to prefer Elsie over her. When Jimmy was 18, he traveled to Sardinia with Anne, acting as her protector and keeping her company. But when he wanted to leave, Anne hid his passport. This apparently resulted in a physical altercation reminiscent of Billy and Anne's fights. When mother and son later emerged from the rental home, Jimmy had his passport back and Anne had a black eye. Soon afterwards, he joined the army, eager to be shipped off to the Vietnam War. He felt he had little to live for and often gave away money or performed stunts to show how little it meant to him, like the time he lit a cigar with a hundred-franc note in Switzerland. He had no desire to participate in high society. In Saigon, Jimmy was devastated when his best friend was killed. He began writing Anne letters that referred to her as a bitch and asked how she had dared to murder his father in cold blood. In the early 1970s, upon his return to the States, Jimmy entered a private psychiatric hospital. While a patient there, he purchased cocaine and heroin for himself and randomly gave away cash, $25,000 at a time, to casual acquaintances, as if the money haunted him. He would bend the handles of 19th-century silver spoon heirlooms to heat up heroin, a metaphoric kind of commentary on his own life. Just before his 26th birthday, he jumped from the fourth story of a friend's apartment. An awning broke his fall, but he sustained ten broken bones. He then began to undergo electroshock therapy. If you're unfamiliar with this psychiatric treatment and haven't yet heard my episode on Sylvia Plath, you might want to listen to that next. It describes some of its devastating effects on patients as it was administered in the mid-20th century. A little less than three years after his mother's suicide, Jimmy succeeded in killing himself by once again jumping out of a window, this time for the ninth story of a New York hotel. He was 31 years old. Elsie died in 1981 at age 98, still offended by the fact that Anne had ever existed. By the early 1970s, Elsie had used her connections to get Anne's older son Woody a job with the New York Post as a journalist. He too went to Vietnam, but only to report on the war. He then attended Harvard Business School. At the time of Jimmy's death, Woody was a Democratic contender for the New York House of Representatives. He lost that race. In 1981, he entered politics again for a New York City Council seat, but the race was called off when the seat was closed. In 1985, the author Dominic Dunn published a novel, The Two Mrs. Grinvilles, which was based on the shooting and the friction between Anne and Elsie. That same year, Woody married a former acquaintance from boarding school, and they had a daughter in 1992. Around 1996, however, he and his wife began divorce proceedings and a custody battle over their child. Like Anne, he had begun traveling the world alone. He also started struggling with depression. In 1999, he climbed through his 14-story kitchen window and, like his brother, fell to his death. He was 54 years old. After Anne died, Truman was condemned for tarnishing the Woodward family name, while Elsie, 
the grand dame of society, was still alive and for dragging the other society matrons, his supposed best friends, his swans, through the mud by publishing their embarrassing scandals. Truman tried to excuse the betrayal of his friends by telling Playboy magazine in an interview after the controversy erupted, All literature is gossip. The title of his unfinished novel was taken from a quote by St. Teresa of Avila, a 16th century Carmelite nun. More tears are shed over answered prayers than unanswered ones. Truman had set out to show the world that despite wealth and everything anyone could ever need or desire, the ultra-rich were sort of pathetic in their inability to find happiness, satisfaction, and grace in their lives. Truman would never have admitted it, but he and his arch-enemy Anne had so many tragedies in common as well. They both came from poor, rural backgrounds, became rich, had strong mothers who were so determined to escape that they sacrificed traditional motherhood, and those mothers set examples for them on how to escape as well as thrive on their own. They both had fraught relationships with their mothers and no relationships at all with their fathers. They were both preternaturally obsessed with high society, although Truman was more successful at being accepted, at least for a while. After being cast out, they both became dependent on drugs to get through each day, and drugs contributed to both of their deaths. If Truman had realized all this, he may have been disgusted to discover how much he really had in common with Anne. Or it might have made him view her as a kindred spirit, perhaps even a model for his fictional Holly Golightly. Nah, this is Truman we're talking about. Team Elsie, Team Billy, Team anyone but Miss Bang Bang. That concludes today's blast into the offbeat past. If you've enjoyed our show, please subscribe. Follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Class A Felons, B Films, C Cups, or Twitter at Class A Felons. And please consider rating us with five stars. Source information and further reading is listed on our website at classafelons.wordpress.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with another story told with vintage flair and big hair. 